Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Gorgias, Part 14 How confident you are, Socrates, that you will never come to harm. You seem to think that you are living in another country, and can never be brought into a court of justice, as you very likely may be brought by some miserable and mean person. Then I must indeed be a fool, Callicles, if I do not know that in the Athenian state any man may suffer anything. And if I am brought to trial and incur the dangers of which you speak, he will be a villain who brings me to trial. Of that I am very sure, for no good man would accuse the innocent. Nor shall I be surprised if I am put to death. Shall I tell you why I anticipate this? By all means. I think that I am the only, or almost the only Athenian living, who practices the true art of politics. I am the only politician of my time. Now, seeing that when I speak my words are not uttered with any view of gaining favor, and that I look to what is best and not to what is most pleasant, having no mind to use those arts and graces which you recommend, I shall have nothing to say in the justice court. And you might argue with me as I was arguing with Polis. I shall be tried just as a physician would be tried in a court of little boys at the indictment of the cook. What would he reply under such circumstances if someone were to accuse him, saying, Oh, my boys, many evil things has this man done to you. He is the death of you, especially of the younger ones among you, cutting and burning and starving and suffocating you until you know not what to do. He gives you the bitterest potions and compels you to hunger and thirst. How unlike the variety of meats and sweets on which I feasted you! What do you suppose that the physician would be able to reply when he found himself in such a predicament? If he told the truth, he could only say, All these evil things, my boys, I did for your health. And then would there not just be a clamor among a jury like that? How they would cry out! I dare say. Would he not be utterly at a loss for a reply? He certainly would. And I, too, shall be treated in the same way, as I well know, if I am brought before the court. For I shall not be able to rehearse to the people the pleasures which I have procured for them, and which, although I am not disposed to envy either the procurers or enjoyers of them, are deemed by them to be benefits and advantages. And if anyone says that I corrupt young men and perplex their minds, or that I speak evil of old men and use bitter words towards them, whether in private or public, it is useless for me to reply as I truly might. All this I do for the sake of justice, and with a view to your interest, my judges, and to nothing else and therefore there is no saying what may happen to me. And do you think, Socrates, that a man who is thus defenseless is in a good position? Yes, Callicles, if he have that defense, which, as you have often acknowledged, he should have, if he be his own defense, and have never said or done anything wrong, either in respect of gods or men, 
and this has been repeatedly acknowledged by us to be the best sort of defense. And if anyone could convict me of inability to defend myself or others after this sort, I should blush for shame, whether I was convicted before many, or before a few, or by myself alone. And if I died from want of ability to do so, that would indeed grieve me. But if I died because I have no powers of flattery or rhetoric, I am very sure that you would not find me repining at death. For no man who is not an utter fool and coward is afraid of death itself, but he is afraid of doing wrong. For to go to the world below, having one's soul full of injustice, is the last and worst of all evils. And in proof of what I say, if you have no objection, I should like to tell you a story. Very well, proceed, and then we shall have done. Listen then, as storytellers say, to a very pretty tale, which I dare say that you may be disposed to regard as a fable only, but which, as I believe, is a true tale, for I mean to speak the truth. Homer tells us how Zeus and Poseidon and Pluto divided the empire which they inherited from their father. Now in the days of Kronos there existed a law respecting the destiny of man, which has always been and still continues to be in heaven, that he who has lived all his life in justice and holiness shall go, when he is dead, to the islands of the blessed, and dwell there in perfect happiness out of the reach of evil but that he who has lived unjustly and impiously shall go to the house of vengeance and punishment, which is called Tartarus. And in the time of Kronos, and even quite lately in the reign of Zeus, the judgment was given on the very day on which the men were to die. The judges were alive, and the men were alive, and the consequence was that the judgments were not well given. Then Pluto and the authorities from the islands of the blessed came to Zeus, and said that the souls found their way to the wrong places. Zeus said, I shall put a stop to this. The judgments are not well given, because the persons who are judged have their clothes on, for they are alive, and there are many who, having evil souls, are apparelled in fine bodies, or encased in wealth or rank, and, when the day of judgment arrives, Numerous witnesses come forward and testify on their behalf that they have lived righteously. The judges are awed by them, and they themselves too have their clothes on when judging. Their eyes and ears and their whole bodies are interposed as a veil before their own souls. All this is a hindrance to them. There are the clothes of the judges and the clothes of the judged. What is to be done? I will tell you. In the first place, I will deprive men of the foreknowledge of death, which they possess at present. This power which they have, Prometheus has already received my orders to take from them. In the second place, they shall be entirely stripped before they are judged, for they shall be judged when they are dead, and the judge too shall be naked, that is to say, dead. He with his naked soul shall pierce into the other naked souls, and they shall die suddenly and be deprived of all their kindred, and leave their brave attire strewn upon the earth. Conducted in this manner, the judgment will be just. I knew all about the matter before any of you, and therefore I have made my sons judges, 
two from Asia, Minos and Radamanthus, and one from Europe, Iacus. And these, when they are dead, shall give judgment in the meadow of the parting of the ways, whence the two roads lead, one to the islands of the blessed, and the other to Tartarus. Radamanthus shall judge those who come from Asia, and Iacus those who come from Europe. And to Minos I shall give the primacy, and he shall hold a court of appeal, in case either of the two others are in any doubt. Then the judgment respecting the last journey of men will be as just as possible. From this tale, Callicles, which I have heard and believe, I draw the following inferences. Death, if I am right, is in the first place the separation from one another of two things, soul and body, nothing else. And after they are separated, they retain their several natures, as in life. The body keeps the same habit, and the results of treatment or accident are distinctly visible in it. For example, he who by nature or training or both was a tall man while he was alive will remain as he was after he is dead. And the fat man will remain fat, and so on, and the dead man who in life had a fancy to have flowing hair will have flowing hair. And if he was marked with the whip, and had the prince of the scourge, or of wounds in him when he was alive, you might see the same in the dead body. And if his limbs were broken or misshapen when he was alive, the same appearance would be visible in the dead. And in a word, whatever was the habit of the body during life would be distinguishable after death, either perfectly or in a great measure and for a certain time. And I should imagine that this is equally true of the soul, Callicles. When a man is stripped of the body, all the natural or acquired affections of the soul are laid open to view. And when they come to the judge, as those from Asia come to Radamanthus, he places them near him and inspects them quite impartially, not knowing whose the soul is. Perhaps he may lay hands on the soul of the great king, or of some other king or potentate, who has no soundness in him. But his soul is marked with the whip, and is full of the prints and scars of perjuries and crimes with which each action has stained him. And he is all crooked with falsehood and imposture, and has no straightness, because he has lived without truth. Him Radamanthus beholds, full of all deformity and disproportion, which is caused by license and luxury and insolence and incontinence, and dispatches him ignominiously to his prison, and there he undergoes the punishment which he deserves. Now the proper office of punishment is twofold. He who is rightly punished ought either to become better and profit by it, or he ought to be made an example to his fellows, that they may see what he suffers and fear, and become better. Those who are improved when they are punished by gods and men are those whose sins are curable. And they are improved, as in this world so also in another, by pain and suffering. For there is no other way in which they can be delivered from their evil. But they who have been guilty of the worst crimes, and are incurable by reason of their crimes, are made examples. For, as they are incurable, the time has passed at which they can receive any benefit. They get no good themselves, but others get good when they behold them enduring forever the most terrible and painful and fearful sufferings as the penalty of their sins. There they are, 
hanging up as examples in the prison house of the world below, a spectacle and a warning to all unrighteous men who come thither, and among them, as I confidently affirm, will be found Archelaus, if Polus truly reports of him, and any other tyrant who is like him. Of these fearful examples, most, as I believe, are taken from the class of tyrants and kings and potentates and public men, for they are the authors of the greatest and most impious crimes, because they have the power. And Homer witnesses to the truth of this, for they are always kings and potentates whom he has described as suffering everlasting punishment in the world below. Such were Tantalus and Sisyphus and Titius, but no one ever described Thersites or any private person who was a villain, as suffering everlasting punishment, or as incurable. For to commit the worst crimes, as I am inclined to think, was not in his power, and he was happier than those who had the power. No, Callicles, the very bad men come from the class of those who have power, and yet in that very class there may arise good men, and worthy of all admiration they are. For where there is great power to do wrong, to live and to die justly is a hard thing, and greatly to be praised, and few there are who attain to this. Such good and true men, however, there have been, and will be again, at Athens and in other states, who have fulfilled their trust righteously. And there is one who is quite famous all over Hellas, Aristiades, the son of Lysimachus. But in general, great men are also bad, my friend. As I was saying, Radamanthus, when he gets a soul of the bad kind, knows nothing about him, neither who he is, nor who his parents are. He knows only that he has got hold of a villain, and seeing this, he stamps him as curable or incurable, and sends him away to Tartarus, whither he goes and receives his proper recompense. Or, again, he looks with admiration on the soul of some just one, who has lived in holiness and truth. He may have been a private man or not. And I should say, Callicles, that he is most likely to have been a philosopher who has done his own work, and not troubled himself with the doings of other men in his lifetime. Him Radamanthus sends to the islands of the blessed. Iacus does the same, and they both have scepters and judge. But Minos alone has a golden scepter, and is seated looking on, as Odysseus in Homer declares that he saw him, holding a scepter of gold, and giving laws to the dead. Now I, Callicles, am persuaded of the truth of these things, and I consider how I shall present my soul whole and undefiled before the judge in that day. Renouncing the honors at which the world aims, I desire only to know the truth, and to live as well as I can, and, when I die, to die as well as I can. And to the utmost of my power I exhort all other men to do the same. And in return for your exhortation of me, I exhort you also to take part in the great combat, which is the combat of life, and greater than every other earthly conflict. And I retort your reproach of me, and say, that you will not be able to help yourself when the day of trial and judgment, of which I was speaking, comes upon you. You will go before the judge, the son of Aegina, 
And when he has got you in his grip and is carrying you off, you will gape, and your head will swim round, just as mine would in the courts of this world. And very likely someone will shamefully box you on the ears, and put upon you any sort of insult. Perhaps this may appear to you to be only an old wife's tale, which you will condemn. And there might be reason in your condemning such tales, if by searching we could find out anything better or truer. But now you see that you and Polus and Gorgias, who are the three wisest of the Greeks of our day, are not able to show that we ought to live any life which does not profit in another world as well as in this. And of all that has been said, nothing remains unshaken but the saying that to do injustice is more to be avoided than to suffer injustice, and that the reality and not the appearance of virtue is to be followed above all things, as well in public as in private life, and that when anyone has been wrong in anything, he is to be chastised and that the next best thing to a man being just is that he should become just, and be chastised and punished. Also, that he should avoid all flattery of himself as well as of others, of the few or of the many. And rhetoric and any other art should be used by him, and all his actions should be done always with a view to justice. Follow me, then and I will lead you where you will be happy in life and after death, as the argument shows. And never mind if someone despises you as a fool and insults you if he has a mind. Let him strike you by Zeus, and do you be of good cheer, and do not mind the insulting blow, for you will never come to any harm in the practice of virtue, if you are a really good and true man. When we have practiced virtue together, we will apply ourselves to politics, if that seems desirable, or we will advise about whatever else may seem good to us, for we shall be better able to judge then. In our present condition, we ought not to give ourselves airs, for even on the most important subjects, we are always changing our minds. So utterly stupid are we. Let us, then, take the argument as our guide which has revealed to us that the best way of life is to practice justice and every virtue in life and death. This way let us go, and in this exhort all men to follow, not in the way to which you trust, and in which you exhort me to follow you, for that way, Callicles, is nothing worth. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>